Welcome to Writer's Digest Presents. Hosted by the editors of Writer's Digest, this monthly podcast features conversations with writing and publishing experts whose insights will help ignite your creative vision, hone your skills, build your platform, and get your work out into the world. Welcome to Writer's Digest Presents. I'm Editor-in-Chief Amy Jones alongside Editor Michael Woodson. Today we are talking with novelist Rob Hart about his most recent book, The Paradox Hotel, which is also featured in the September-October 2023 issue of the magazine. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, As we get started, could you briefly describe the premise of The Paradox Hotel for listeners who haven't read it yet? Sure. Uh, So the Paradox Hotel is set in a hotel for time travelers, and it's about the house detective, whose name is January, who uh, at the start of the book is dealing with a whole bunch of problems, but the biggest one being that there are all these billionaires who are coming in and bidding for the rights to take over both the hotel and the accompanying time port, which would basically privatize time travel. And as if this isn't a problem enough, she finds a dead body that no one else can see. So she's not exactly sure if this is a murder that will happen or might happen or or what. So she suddenly finds herself in this position of trying to solve this impossible murder at the same time that all these billionaires are, are trying to come in and basically wreck reality. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fairly terrifying. <clears throat> <laughs> Um, So I heard you talk a little bit about this at the Writer's Digest conference, but could you tell us a little bit about how you came up with this idea and how you pitched it to your agent and editor? Sure. Uh, I I don't know if either of you have been to Sleep No More. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Okay. Uh, Highly recommended. It's a interactive theater show. It's in Manhattan uh, in Chelsea. And it's essentially, it's like a retelling of Macbeth, uh, but... It's It starts in a hotel, and then it sort of spreads out to where it's on, like, multiple floors of this warehouse, and you'll be in, like, a psych ward and go through a door and be in a cemetery and then go through another door and be, like, you know, in, in, in the forest. Uh, and all the, the audience members wear masks, and you're watching the actors performing it live, but you can follow different actors, you can follow different scenarios, you can go into rooms and start rifling through drawers. It is it is wild. I've done it like four yeah. or five times. And one of the times I was doing it, I was just walking from one room to another. And I was like, wouldn't it be cool if there was a hotel where you can walk into a room and it was like five minutes from now or 10 minutes ago? And I was like, oh, cool. You know, time travel hotel. So I have this system for myself where whenever I get an idea, I, I start a Google Doc and I throw it in there. And some of them work out. Some of them don't. You know, some of them are nonsense. And I look back at them and wonder what I was thinking. But with this one, it just kept on scratching at me. And I was like, you know, I really think this would be fun. And I've always wanted to do a time travel book. And I pitched it to my agent. uh, And I was like, yeah, you know, I've got this great idea. It's going to be a time travel book. It's going to be, but but there's no real time travel. It's set in a hotel for time travelers. And there's going to be robots and dinosaurs. But it's also going to be about like grief and, you know, how hard it is to face yourself and moving on from from trauma. And and he was like, that sounds insane. Don't write that. (laughs) And I was like, okay, you're the boss. And I started working on another pitch for like six months that went nowhere. And finally, I I called him up and I stamped my feet and I cried. And I was like, I need to write the time travel book. This is the book that's in me. This is the one I want to do. And he was like, okay, fine. Okay, fine. And my editor was also sort of on the fence, but was open to the idea. And I remember when I, I finished the draft of the book, 
maybe like eight months later and I sent it to my agent and he read it. I was at the playground with my daughter and, and she's like running around and, and I'm just kind of like standing off to the side and I get a phone call and he's like, all right, all right, you pulled off the dinosaurs. I'm like, yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> it, it's one of those things and, and that's the difficulty sometimes with this process is, is you yeah. know, you see it in your head and you're like, I get this, I know this, but it's hard to explain in, you know, uh, j- just sitting someone down and telling it to them or, or even in like a couple of pages in a written pitch. Right. And so you find yourself in this place of, of having this whole world inside you and being like, I get it. Like, how do I make someone else get it? And yeah, you know, the trick is, is to throw a tantrum. <laughs> that someone else said something similar. I can't remember who at their conference that maybe it was one of the keynotes was saying, they felt compelled to, there was a story in them that they knew they wanted to write and their editor and agent was like, don't. And then it mm-hmm. just came, kept coming back to them. And then ultimately it was like, they had, just had to prove that they could, what was in their head was something that other people could um, uh, digest and understand as well. That's interesting. I think it's good mm-hmm. advice. It's, it's, you know, it goes back to the one thing that I keep on telling people lately is that if you want to make it, you got to be stubborn. That's the best yeah. thing you can do is just be really, really stubborn. <laughs> um, you mentioned dinosaurs and um, something that I, I don't think can be ignored is the pacing, which is like totally relentless in this book. I I, I ran into at the conference. I told you this book like blew my mind and um, I was like breathless after certain scenes and without giving too much spoilers, like the, the dinosaur scene is a great example of that. Um, so my question is, what is your advice for other writers who want to ma- maintain a certain like pulse pounding pace without overwhelming readers? Because there was, there were still a lot of moments of introspection in this book that are also crucial to the story, but the pace was never compromised. That's one of those things that, you know, and, and I'm always, I'm always interested in the idea of taking the writing process and trying to, to, to yeah. put some science in the art and, and break it down in a way that is going to make it easy to digest. But when it comes to pacing, sometimes it's one of those things like, you know, when you see it, like I know that when I start to get bored or when I start to flag, then it's like, okay, we got to pick up the pace a little bit. We got to do something here. That's going to be fun and interesting. I know that if I linger on a scene for too long, then I might lose the interest of a reader. And it's like, okay, we have to start moving things right now. And it's also kind of knowing that as important as those introspective scenes are, you have to have them because you need to have breaths for the characters is you also don't want them to spend the entire book doing that. Right. You know, and it's this mix of, of trying to, to have my cake and eat it too. Like I said, yeah. you know, earlier, it was like, it's a book about grief. It's a book about moving on, but it's also going to be a fun book because if this is like my time travel book like I want to write my version of it and so one of the things that I tell people a lot that I think a really good thing to do for pacing and and when I started thinking of it in these terms it just really sort of like solidified a lot of things for me is that you know kung fu movies and musicals are essentially the same uh in that you get a bunch of people in a room and you know as emotions start to rise either someone sings or someone fights someone uh but <laughs> really, really good ones are sort of expertly paced in the sense that you kind of see that emotional rise and then you see that sort of like climactic moment of, of the song or the fight, but then you kind of need a breath after that. Like you need to, you need to take a breath. You need to let everyone's nervous systems kind of like regulate. And then you find the opportunity to do it again. And, and when you look at it of like the dips and the waves of that, it gets a lot easier and a really good 
song or a really good fight scene will tell a story. You know, you mm-hmm. can still advance the story while you're doing these things. And once you kind of lock into this idea of like, okay, cool, like I'm going to have this scene with dinosaurs in it, but what is what, what like what is it saying? You know, it's it's cool to have, and I'm excited. But what is this revealing about the characters and the way they interact? And then what is it revealing about January? And right. once you kind of find that rhythm, I think it gets a little bit easier. But finding the rhythm is, is it, it's hard. It takes a lot of practice. So one of the things that was interesting to me was how the this book sort of blended genres a little bit. You know, it's kind of part sci-fi, part mystery, crime. And I wondered what blending those genres allowed you to do with the story or to get away with in the story that sticking to one clear genre would have prohibited or Mm. made more challenging? It lets you get away with a lot more, which has always been the thing that I loved about doing that, about combining genres, is that all of a sudden your your, your toy box gets so much bigger. All of a sudden Mm -hmm. you've got so Mm -hmm. much more stuff to play with. And I knew that I I wanted to sort of have both fantastical elements, but also make it feel kind of grounded, make it feel mm-hmm. like, okay, this is a whodunit. Like I'm going to, I'm going to sort of adhere mm-hmm. to these rules that if you're really, really paying attention, you might be able to figure it out, or you might be able to guess who the bad guy is at the end. But at the same time, I wanted to sort of shove in all this other stuff. Uh, and again, like that comes from me just wanting to have the, the absolute best time possible. Yeah. Um, what was funny is my my next book, which is coming out in June, uh, it's called Assassins Anonymous. And it's about a, a basically like a John Wick level hitman who gets into a uh, like a recovery program for killers. And it was it was weird, you know, after the warehouse and Paradox Hotel, like sort of leaving that that cross genre spec sci fi thing and going into mm-hmm. just a contemporary thriller. And there were so many times my instinct was to push it further and do something weirder and start bringing like sci-fi elements into it and actually kind of relish that challenge of like, no, this is going to be grounded. Like this is something that can happen right now. And those limits can be fun sometimes because they push you to be a little bit more creative. They push you to, to work a little harder, but I'm not going to lie. I, I, I did kind of miss the ability to just do literally anything I wanted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of related to that, but it's also related to something that you mentioned at the beginning where this is a time travel book with no time travel. Um, And one of the things I wrote about the book in the November, December issue is that it felt like a, a variation um, on on the locked room mystery trope, except this is like a lockdown hotel. (laughs) Um, Did you have that idea in mind when you were writing the book? And in in that specific regard, what kind of freedoms or de- restrictions did that create? I definitely wanted it to have a sort of locked room mystery feel. Uh, that 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 going into that 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 was key. And someone said this once, and, and I wish I could remember because I want to give them credit because it's so good. So I'm just going to say like this was not mine. Uh, but someone once said that any story that your character can walk away from, your reader can walk away from which mm-hmm. I think about a lot when I'm working. It's like you have to give people a reason to stay engaged because you have to have the character completely trapped in where they are. And so for January, it's kind of like a double whammy because she's in this hotel. It's a little remote. There's a blizzard going on outside. So little little shining vibes there. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, in the book, she's suffering from a neurological condition that mm-hmm. makes her kind of like slip around in time. And because of this, she can see her dead girlfriend. 
And because she can still maintain some level of connection there, she's afraid if she leaves, she's going to lose it. So she's got both this physical connection and this psychological connection. And I just, I just loved this idea of, of setting it, it just in this one building, you know, and, and not having moments of, you know, she gets in a machine and she travels somewhere else. Like there, there, there's a flashback chapter to uh, her on an assignment in uh, right. Berlin in like mm-hmm. World War Two, but yeah, I, I kind of, and again, like I like to set challenges for myself. It was like, can I write a time travel book where no one gets in the machine and goes somewhere? Can I just sort of, you know, get away with doing this? Totally. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, fe- I felt pretty good about it because sometimes you need those restrictions to sort of focus in on the characters and the setting. Because, you know, I said before, like, I, I love having the ability to kind of do whatever I want. But sometimes mm-hmm. if you can do that, you can very easily spin off the rails, like going down too many pathways where, you know, if I'm stuck in this hotel with these characters, then that's where I'm going to be. Wow. I The way you just described that also, I hadn't considered like the elements of magical realism in this too, but there is the, some magical realism happening with Paradox Hotel as well. And you saying like, this is a time travel story without time travel. A lot of magical realism, like the way it's described when you read it, it's nothing. You just can't, you can't be prepared for what you're about to read. And I think in that way, it just made the book endlessly surprising. Um, and sort of related to all of this with the genre, something else, it feels like a blended emotional story as well. Like it's not just dramatic. There's a lot of really funny moments too. And January as a character is just really dry and sarcastic and her internal monologue is very funny. But as the story progresses, we start to realize that in a lot of ways, her humor is just a defense mechanism. And that, as you said, she's not dealing with a lot of the trauma that she's experienced Mm -hmm. in the past, which feels kind of like a really slow reveal. Like uh, you just think this is who she is, like a crabby, sarcastic, funny main character. And then you're just like, oh, she's compartmentalizing. She's not dealing. Um, And my question is, like, how do you balance the heart with the humor? And then also, how do you start to incorporate that into revealing plot? The, the, the balance can be hard. And actually, the first draft that my agent read, he was like, you got to tone it down with January really? a little bit. She's too much of a jerk, oh. uh, mm. which, which was totally right and totally fair. And, and it was a very conscious choice to make her very acerbic and, and very sort mm. of protective of herself. Because humor is a defense mechanism. It's the way that when we are struggling with the world around us or we're feeling like people aren't getting us, like we just like go, okay, we can make them laugh and that'll protect us. That'll, that'll give us a perceived value. And all of a sudden we'll be less of a target. And yeah, you know, she, she just, she, 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 she's the queen of deflection. You know, Mm. she's so good at it. And and, and there's a part of me that's like that too. Like I, I tend to come from a place of, leaning into humor too much when I need to be sort of leaning into vulnerability. And and so that was the thing that I was trying to kind of question and unravel. And I also think humor is just generally a really important thing in fiction. Yeah. It's uh it's it's this way to sort of get your audience on your side is is to to make them like your characters, to make them laugh and have a good time. And what I find is that it opens them up. And then the emotional moments at the end just like hit like body blows. And I think a, a, a contemporary master of that is James Gunn, who did the Guardians mm. of the Galaxies movies, because those are just funny, silly, goofy movies where everyone is a clown, but they're all characters who are dealing with pain. 
and deflecting that pain through humor. But by the time you get to the end, once those walls are broken down and, and you see those more human moments where they're actually connecting and, and, and sort of like working through those walls, it's like, oh my God, like it's just, you really feel it. And I, I really, I really aspire to that. And, and again, it's mm -hmm. one of those things that like finding the balance is hard. You know, it took me my first draft and my agent telling me like, okay, you got to tone it down a little bit. And then going back in and saying like, okay, where is she being protective and where is she mm -hmm. just being mean, you know? Cause, and sometimes she's mean, sometimes she, you know, actively pushes people away because she's afraid of revealing things about herself. Yeah. And they call she's her so out afraid. That. They do, they do, which I think is important, you know, yeah, and, totally. and it's another thing about the book that I really, I mean, I'm a sucker for a found family narrative, you know, Same. and, and mm -hmm. I loved that, that feeling of all of these people who like clearly loved her and clearly wanted the best for her, but also kind of seeing the way that they were breaking down and the way that they were getting tired of it and the way they were just not letting her get away with it anymore until she realized, oh my God, I really am alone now. Like I thought mm -hmm. I was and I wasn't. And then I pushed everyone so far away that I kind of did this to myself. And then that's her yeah. realization moment of like, oh, it's okay to ask for help. Mm -hmm. That whole her story, that emotional story, um, I think was, I mean, I know it's a key part of the book, but it really was one of my favorite parts, like seeing well, her, you. her growth journey. Um, and I thought, it, you know, ultimately in a way, this is also a love story. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And I really, like, it's, and it's I really funny. Like that. people keep on, they keep on asking me like what genre it is. And and for some reason in my head, I always just go to romance. Like it's, yeah. it's I think it's the most earnest thing I've ever written in those terms wow. of, mm. you know, of, of January's relationship with Mina and mm -hmm. that relationship. I just, I loved it so much and it was yeah. so much fun to write. It was just, you know, it, it, it was, it was certainly something that, that, you know, provided some challenges because, mm -hmm. you know, January is queer and Mina is a trans woman. And I, I had uh, two fabulous authors, uh, Alina Boyden and Emma, Emma Johnson, who are both trans, who both sat me down and kind of kept me in check and kept me in line. Mm -hmm. uh, Alina very generously read the book and then sat me down afterward. And she's like, okay, like, here's the stuff that you did good. Here's the stuff that you messed up. And, yeah. you know, she 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 was amazing in just sort of like barreling down to these great points that you know i i go into it with an open heart and wanting mm -hmm. to do the best job that i can but i'm going to have blind spots you know they, they happen and it's why i'm always encouraging people to seek out beta readers and seek mm -hmm. out sensitivity readers when they're not writing characters that are sort of of their own viewpoint because mina's transness does end up becoming important to the plot so, totally. you know, you want to go into that with as much respect as you can, but also humility and knowing that mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to mess this up. Like I want, I want Alina to read this and say, okay, like I can see something here. And, uh, mm -hmm. it was, it, it was kind of a scary process. Again, it was one of those challenges I set for myself of like, can I, can I do this in a way that is thoughtful and sensitive and kind of gets to the root of what I'm trying to talk about, which is again, like a found family and, and we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we just talked about this being kind of um, well, a romance as well, but there's also this um, sort of like political element to it a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, that's one of the 
one of the other things that I love about it, it poses this question of, you know, what's more dangerous, time travel being controlled and restricted by the government versus being unregulated in the hands of the private private business sector. And um, those kinds of stories are some of my favorites, but they can get heavy handed sometimes. Mm -hmm. So as you envisioned this um, (laughs) worst case scenario for each, how did you um, make sure that what you included in the story um, served the story compared to just being something you wanted to include because it's of interest to you? Well, yeah, it's definitely of interest to me. I am incapable of writing a book at this point where the billionaires aren't the bad guys uh, because I think billionaires (laughs) are sort of inherently evil. But what, what I actually did early in the process of writing this book, which really helped, is I was trying to figure out like, okay, what would it look like if time travel became a thing? And so I started thinking in terms of NASA and space travel, where space travel was sort of founded as a government pursuit, as you know, something that was funded by governments, and now has slowly turned into a private industry. And it was like, okay, well, that tracks. Like, I can see that happening with time travel. So I mm-hmm. dug a little bit further, and I was like, well, what happens to space travel? Like, why are they trying to privatize space travel? Because it can't just be for tourism. It's got to be for other reasons. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there's a ton of reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, you get to launch and control communication satellites. Because if you can figure out how to manufacture and ship in zero G, you would make a ton of money because every meteorite that approaches earth has like a trillion dollars worth of platinum in it. And all of a sudden you see like, Oh, I see why these guys are doing this. It's not so they can like do a sightseeing tour of, of the lower atmosphere. It's so they can figure out how to monopolize the Mm. act of being in space and how to profit off that. And when I started thinking in those terms, it was like, oh, yeah, like there's got to be plenty of ways to profit off time travel. I mean, and and there are some ideas that come to mind like really easily in terms of, you know, go back and pick a couple of winning lotto ticket numbers or something. But then you get into things like stock market manipulation and, you know, sort of trying to 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 reinvent technologies or or th- there's so many ways to to game the system and billionaires that's what they do they game the system they they've figured mm-hmm. out ways to sort of hoard wealth and hoard resources in a way that puts them on top of the pile so yeah the, 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 there's a very healthy healthy hatred in my heart that I'm writing from <laughs> but 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 you're right you're right in the sense that you don't want it to be heavy-handed and that's always the that's always the difficult part is because you don't want the reader to feel like they're being lectured you know, you want them to read yeah. it and get it and understand it, but not feel like they just walked out of a civics lesson because that's right. that's not fun. Uh, I, I think I kind of cut my teeth on that writing The Warehouse, which was, mm. you know, a big anti-Amazon book. And, and so I spent so much of that book asking the question of how do I talk about how terrible these business practices are in a way that is entertaining? Uh, you know, with Paradox, it's easy. You just throw a dinosaur in every now and again. Right. <laughs> uh, did either of you watch the movie Don't Look Up? I, I heard yes. dismal reviews about it. I it heard was it was just not good. Just fine. Like it's yeah. not great, but yeah. there is an element of what you're saying, which was interesting, which was the most interesting part of the movie was how they had an opportunity to um, destroy this media that was going to destroy the planet. And as they're uh, like counting down to destroy it, a billionaire comes in and convinces the president to not do it because like they can make so much money off of like the natural resource that the um 
the asteroid will have and you're watching it like wow people really Mm -hmm. i mean this is barely fiction like this is barely fiction so it's just interesting like it is a a healthy hatred in our hearts i think is a good thing (laughs) yeah yeah i think it's it's impossible to have become a billionaire without having done very very terrible things uh exploiting workforces destroying the planet like you can't be a completely altruistic and guiltless billionaire Mm -hmm. uh I, i just just before we got on i was reading uh in the New Yorker, a review of Walter Isaacson's new biography on Elon Musk. And I'm like, man, mm-hmm. part of me wants to read this and part of me knows know. it's going to be a big time hate read. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Which is not good for my blood pressure, which I'm already on medication for. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, something else that I loved about this book is just it has an extraordinary cast of characters and they're all like so unique and they're really paramount to January, but also to how certain plot points unfold and i um a lot of times when i'm liking a book i'll like switch to the audio because i'm like dying to hear how the audiobook sounds and the audiobook is so good for this book really the the um person who does the reading just does an incredible job of uh capturing each character uniquely um so i'm curious like how did you keep this organized for you during the writing process do you have like each of their names on a post-it or like bullet points or something like what did you do well, just just real quick, I'm I'm so glad to hear you say that the you liked the audiobook. That was Emily Wuzeller, uh, who narrated uh Zinnia's character in the warehouse, which I, I think she did Paxton too. I, I can't listen to my audiobooks because they, they sure. mess with my head because it's like that's not how that sounds in my brain. Sure. This is weird. So uh <laughs> so whenever anyone says they, that that it was really good, I'm like, thank God. Like like I know she does a good <laughs> job. That's why I asked for her back on this one. But um yeah. Yeah, you know, I got kind of lucky in the sense that part of the fun of writing a hotel is that you've got hotel staff, you know, right. so you have these characters, you know, you can have a manager, you can have a concierge, you can have a sort of head bellhop, you can have these these sort of archetypal like characters mm-hmm. working for you. And then it's a matter of figuring out like, okay, like what do their functions need to be? And and then when it was like, oh, you know, I have to have a couple of billionaires coming in to bid on this thing. Like, how do I want to build out this cast list? And it was like, well, what would be interesting? Like, of course, we have to have a a sort of social media giant billionaire. and We have to have a, a self-made billionaire. and We have to have an old racist real estate billionaire. And we have to have a, a Saudi prince because that's where pretty much all the money in the world is concentrated. <laughs> and... Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a vigorous outliner, so I'll mm-hmm. I'll come up with with all my plot points and my character maps and descriptions of everyone, and really try to keep that balance of understanding what each one is supposed to be doing for the story, because each one is serving a different function, you know. And especially when you're writing a mystery, you also you want to have some red herrings, you want to have people mm-hmm. you suspect, you want to have people that can throw and cast suspicion, so. From a mechanical standpoint, it's sort of like looking for all the right nuts and bolts that are going to fit into the machine that are going to keep it moving smoothly. And then from a from another perspective, it's like you know how much fun do I want to have? Like mm-hmm. like who 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 can I introduce and how can I make them feel like characters that you can easily see them step off the page and go be the star of their own story? And when I think in those terms, it, it gets a lot more interesting for me. Well, so you said that you or an outliner, how, how much do you stick to that outline as you go through the drafting process? Because I've heard so many stories of people who are like, I have this outline and I start and then it's gone. Right. <laughs> I tend to, I, I always know what the big points are. I, I and, and I know, I, I always know the beginning. I always know the ending. I have to have the ending because I have to have an end point. But 
the way I describe it to people is it's like taking a road trip, an old school road trip with an actual paper map. And I know that, you know, I'm starting in one city, I'm ending in another. And I see the route that I'm going to take that makes the most sense. But I leave myself room that if I'm driving and I see a sign for like the world's biggest ball of yarn, it's like, cool, I'm going to go check that out. And maybe it is stupid and maybe it was a waste of time or maybe it was the best ball of yarn ever, ever, you know? So, so I try to allow myself though, those points of, okay, like let, let, I've got an idea. I'm going to follow it for a little bit. We're going to see how it goes. And I tend to find that I usually am fairly close to my outline, but definitely in the process, things kind of move around and shift and change a little bit, which I think is good. I think that if I was too rigid about it, then mm. I wouldn't be able to have those moments of discovery. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that scares people about writing outlines. They're like, well, what's the fun? You're not discovering anything yeah. along the way. And it's like, well, I, I think it just keeps you on a, on a path. So you're, you're sort of working with, with intent instead of spiraling off road you know that that was the thing that i i did with my first book is i didn't know how to write a book so i just sat down and started writing and after like five years i had a mess of a draft and a, a very a very cool author um who had no reason to do this he, he was just being kind uh offered to read it and he read it and was like you've got a lot of great stuff here but you have to do a page one rewrite and, and he was completely wow. correct and and I found, at least for my process, that what I needed to do was sit down and actually break down what I thought the story needed to be, like do my first outline and then rewrite it. And then it really came together. So, you know, I, I, I respect anyone who could write without an, out an outline. I mean, Amy, when we were doing the, the panel at uh, the Writer's Digest conference, I think Hank Philippi Ryan said that she does an outline. Mm. And I'm like... Mm-hmm. I, I I want some of what you're drinking. Like, that sounds so much fun. <laughs> and, and I love this idea of maybe one day actually sitting down and trying to write something without an outline and see what happens. But I just find for me and my process, that's the thing that keeps me the most centered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you mentioned red herrings earlier that I remember what I was going to say. Cool. And I just wanted to say like, yeah, they were working hard in your book because I really thought I knew. I really thought I knew who it really? was. Like, okay. And I I just don't guess anything and I never guess it right like I am the perfect audience for this and I was so proud of myself I was like it's this person it's this person (laughs) wow look at me go and then I just was so so wrong and um is like one of the joys of these kinds of books is that when when they're done like with this much attention to detail and accuracy like you you like I relish being wrong you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. I I was like oh I was so wrong like and it makes you want to go back and reread it and look for the clues. Um, so yeah, you, I, I, it, it was just like, oh, it really blew my mind. This book really blew my mind because I was just like, this is relentless. Like the pacing is nuts in a good way. Um, I, I'm certain I know who it is. And then I was wrong. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's always really satisfying to hear that stuff too, because those are the things that you hope for when you're writing it. But also, that's also the thing that's so hard about writing a book is that you have to dedicate months and months and months of time and just hope it works out. You know, mm-hmm. you hope it comes together. Again, you got to be stubborn. You got to be able to say totally. like, yeah, no, this is going to be fine. Even though I spend most of the time that I'm writing a book being like, I don't know how to write a book. You know, it doesn't <laughs> matter how many I've written at this point. I still don't believe I know how to write a book. Like I, um, I'm, I'm starting the sequel to Assassin's Anonymous. And so wow. noodling around with the first chapter and trying to figure out the voice. And the, there, there is a very deep part of me right now that is like, I don't know how to do this. Like, why am yeah. I doing this? And it's, it's amazing. It's so, so someone said this to me that it's like writing a book is like climb, you climb a mountain, 
you get down to the other end of the mountain, you look at the next mountain and you say, I have no idea how to climb a mountain. Like it's, it's yeah. like you do it in like mm-hmm. a fugue state. It's like, you got to kind of click in and lock in. So I, you, you did mention, um, Assassin's Anonymous as yes. the next thing you're working on. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Cause I think you've got more than just that in the works. Don't you, don't you have something else coming out with, um, a co-writer? I do. I do. Uh, that's actually, I finished edits on that yesterday and nice. that, that has now, so that's over to Alex Segura. Uh, he's my co-writer on that and it's called dark space. And it's kind of we're we're doing our Star Trek, but it's basically if like nice. John Lacaray did Star Trek, so it's it's a lot of like space espionage, and it's oh, uh, it's nice. a fun one that's coming out from Blackstone, I think, later in the year uh, in twenty twenty four. So I've got two next year, which is super exciting. Wow. And, and plus, you? Alex is such a good friend, and and we've worked on a lot of stuff together. So it'll be fun to 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 to, to work on promo for that one. Yeah, that's so cool. And you're already working on a sequel to yes. Assassin's Anonymous. Yeah, I was uh, I was very very fortunate in that so Assassin's Anonymous was optioned for a film by by Amblin, oh, wow. uh which was kind of a wild process because I don't think my film agent sent it to anyone. It got leaked by some book scouts and got passed around Hollywood and all of a sudden her phone was ringing off the hook. Wow. And it kind of <laughs> went viral in in Hollywood and then then Steven Spielberg came in and it was like, oh, well, you know, I guess this is the end to this conversation. We know who's getting it. And and they 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 absolutely loved it. And they and look like it's it's an option. It doesn't mean anything is going to happen. But the way they envision it is as a franchise. And, you know, wow. in my head, I can see very easily how it could become a series uh, of books. So, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I'm digging into wow. right now, which is which is really, really, really exciting. Steven yeah. Spielberg. We own him here. He's from Cincinnati, so we pretend all nice. of us pretend he was our neighbor. <laughs> yeah, and and it wouldn't even be for him to direct. He would probably be like a producer on it. But but yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. matter. He's involved. <laughs> like I don't care. Exactly. Like yeah. like exactly. when they told me like, oh, we talked to Stephen about this story, and he really loved it. And I was like, oh, did he, he? said like, my I, name. I lost my cool. I lost yeah. my cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so neat. Have any of your other books been optioned for film? Uh, pretty much, pretty much everything has been optioned at one point wow. or another. Uh, the mm-hmm. warehouse, um, Ron Howard had that at Imagine Entertainment. <laughs> then cool. the option expired, but someone else is actually very close to optioning it. Um, hmm. Then my initial series of books, uh, my Ash McKenna books, that I actually just read the pilot script for. Village Roadshow has that, and they're working on wow. that. And uh, the pilot is brilliant. It's completely unlike the books. And yet I, I, they went in such a weird direction with it and I absolutely love it. How cool. Uh, so we're hoping for that to, to move forward. And then with Paradox, um, that's with Working Title and again, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant pilot script. Uh, and I can't say who, but a couple of days before the yeah. writer's strike, uh, a really, really cool actress signed on to play January. No and now it's like, oh, I guess we will wait. So yeah, I am absolutely very eagerly watching for the news to end. And, and then they'll go out and it'll still be a process. And that doesn't mean it's going to happen. But, you know, it's uh, I, I feel very fortunate to have projects active like this and to see mm-hmm. that people are taking the work and, and interpreting it in a really fun and exciting way. And now it's, you know, once again, we got to wait for a whole bunch of rich dudes yeah. to, to, to mm-hmm. come to the realization that they will live without a sixth yacht if it means that their writers can actually afford to pay for healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> we call that the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, it's wild. It's wild. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's the way things have been going for a long time. It's really frustrating to see. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've got a whole other book idea about hoarding wealth that oh, I would can't like wait to get to some point. Yeah. yeah. Sign me up. I will read that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I had another question, but I think it's totally irrelevant to um, to what we were actually talking about. So I'll, I'll well, skip that. I'm curious, that. though. <laughs> well, it was about what you said with um, the script and for uh, the, the pilot for the warehouse, it being totally unlike the book. And I'm always so interested when, you know, like, when do authors get to participate yeah. or choose to participate in adapting their books to TV or film? And when they aren't involved, how do you let go of that? I mean, I, I feel like I would be protective of what I wrote. And then other authors yeah. are like, oh, it's out there. It's for other people to work with now. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there's a part of me that does feel protective of the things that mm -hmm. I write. Uh, there's also a part of me that understands from from a completely you know rational perspective of like wanting to be mm -hmm. able to send my daughter to a good college, that even if they make a bad TV show or a bad movie, uh, it's going to sell books and it's mm -hmm. going to help my career and it's going to be okay. Obviously, I want them to do a good job, but um, sure. You know, I've been very fortunate again in that you know I read the but both the the pilot scripts for Paradox and for New York. They sent them to me and they were like, "Do you have any notes?" And I was like, "Yes, I have a note." These are very good. Oh, wow. uh, you know, I didn't have to be in this position of like, oh, but you messed this. Oh, you should change. Like I, I the, the people working on them were just phenomenal. So, mm -hmm. you know, had I gotten a script that I didn't feel great about, you know, whether or not I could say like, like they, they always say like, oh, yeah, we want we want your input. And then over the course of time, you find out if that's true or not. Yeah. You know, right. um, I've been really lucky in that everyone I've worked with so far has been incredible uh, and, and they've been very resp responsive. But I also understand my role in the process, which is not to tell them how to do their job because I don't know how. Totally. You know, I understand that sometimes I just have to sit in the corner and patiently fold my hands and wait. And I'm OK with that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I also have friends, authors who are like, oh, yeah, my book got options and then they never spoke to me again. And then there was an announcement in the trades about someone getting casted. And I really wish they had told me about it. So sure. It's yeah. one of those things where it's like it depends on who you work with. So yeah. um, hmm. I, I I have just had the 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 real incredible luck to just everyone I've worked with so far has just been super cool. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Rob, thank you so much. It was fantastic talking to you. I appreciate the book and um, look forward to what you're working on next. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thank you for listening to Writer's Digest Presents. Join us next month when we'll be talking about revision and self-editing. Until then, you can always find us at writersdigest.com or on social media at Writer's Digest. See you next time.